Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter four this morning, as we continue our study in the book of First Peter. Just a couple more weeks. Speaking of a couple more weeks, three weeks from today, Sunday, April the 6th, is our fourth anniversary as a church. So, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. And uh, so along with that day, uh, obviously we're having a potluck that Sunday as well. So just mark that on your calendar, Sunday, April the 6th, we would love for you to be a part of the whole day. Obviously, this year will not be as big a deal as next year. The fifth anniversary, we're going to do some very special things for our fifth anniversary next year. But every year that goes by, it is certainly worth praising the Lord for, for all that he's doing and all that he's done. So today, Peter wants to talk to us about the will of God. And I hope to sort of demystify maybe in some ways, the will of God for some folks here this morning, because even amongst Christians, there's a lot of debate, a lot of confusion when it comes to the subject of God's will. And the reason why Peter transitions to God's will this morning is because, remember, last week we talked about the fact that God wants us to trust His purposes for our lives. He wants us to trust His plan for our lives. He wants us to trust the path that He has us on for our lives. He has a specific design and purpose for each of us. That's why he created us with that design and purpose in mind. So Peter, though, weaving into that has been talking too about obviously suffering and undergoing painful circumstances. And so Peter wants to remind us that, look, we've got to get to a point in our lives as a Christian. We've got to grow to a point where we not only embrace God's will and accept God's will when things are good, but where we embrace and accept and even charge into God's will, maybe when things aren't so good, but we understand that this is all part of a greater purpose and design than we can ever imagine. And going back to last week, the foundation that Peter has built on, I need to learn to trust God in his plans, in his purposes, in the path that he has for me. And again, that's especially challenging when it comes to suffering, which is why then Peter picks up on this again in chapter 4 when he reminds us, hey, Christ suffered in the flesh. He says there's no mistake about that. Our God, our Savior, our Lord, he went through very painful experiences In his flesh. And so Peter goes on in verse 1 to tell us as believers, arm yourselves with the same attitude, the same mindset, the same motivations that Jesus Christ had. And he's reminding us there then how important it is that we be committed to following the will of God. In other words, he's saying, look, Jesus was following the will of God even through all of the pain and suffering that he went through, even into that last week where it became even more intense, though he experienced rejection and pain and all of that up to that point, that last week that he was alive, he really took on all of that suffering, obviously so that we would benefit and profit through all that in bringing us to God, as Peter talked about. But nonetheless, he had 
he was so committed to the will of God that he was willing to embrace it, even charge into it. When they went to arrest him, Jesus didn't run. He faced them and said, hey, if you're here to arrest me, arrest me. Judas, you're here to betray me, betray me. I'm going to swallow up whatever is before me because I know it is God's will and therefore I know it's going to bring him glory and I know it's going to be for the highest good of all those involved. And so Peter is saying to every Christian, Christian, we've got to arm ourselves with that kind of commitment to the will of God because it is a battle. And that word arm there means to to be equipped for battle to be heavily armed and, 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 and prepared for the battle that's ahead. And especially when it comes to suffering. Because many Christians will say, I'll follow God's will as long as everything's going well. As long as, you know, there's no pain or difficult circumstances involved. As long as it's good for me, you know, type of thing. And, you know, we live even in a, in a world of self-absorption and And it's all about us. And so for Christians, there's that battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil about following God's will because, man, sometimes he's going to call on us, as we've learned, to suffer, to undergo painful experiences. And will we embrace that just like we would embrace something else for God? That's why he says, arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had, you see. In the flesh. Because then he goes on in verse 2 to say this. For the one that, well, at the end of verse 1, the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. In other words, he's saying that as a Christian, we enter into a whole different state of commitment to God whenever we are willing to suffer if it's part of the will of God. Because not all Christians are going to be willing to follow God's will no matter what. Not all Christians are like Stephen, who even while he was being stoned, was willing to accept and embrace that this was God's will for his life. And he looks up into heaven, and in the midst of him being stoned to death, there's such a peace coming over Stephen in the book of Acts. Because again, he was in a place where he was like, if this is God's will, I'm going to charge right into it. Because I know that God's going to bring glory to himself through this. And God only has my highest good and other people's highest good in mind as he allows this to happen. And so that's the kind of mindset that we need to develop, you see, as Christians. To have that kind of a commitment. That, that being so consumed with God's will. Which is why then Peter goes on in verse 2 to say, in that, this kind of Christian is going to spend the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. See, this is the key verse really in this whole passage we're going to look at this morning. Because Peter is saying, I want to encourage you believers to embrace, to charge into the will of God. Let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, we understand That the Bible teaches us that God gives us all a choice. He doesn't force us to do his will. He will lead us and say, this is is the will I have for you. But he won't force us to do his will. We have that choice that he gives us. 
Now, over that is his sovereignty. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But underneath that sovereignty, he gives us a lot of free movement within that to be able to make our own choices of whether we're going to follow God's will for our life or not follow God's will. And he wants us to choose to follow that will. He wants us to understand that the scriptures teach that his will for us, yes, will bring him glory. We're going to talk about that. But it's also for our highest good. And that that whatever he has for us is going to benefit and profit us. It's also going to fulfill us and satisfy us like nothing else. And so Peter here again is just trying to inspire, motivate, and encourage us to run into the will of God. Whatever his design or purpose is for our lives. And the reason again why Peter starts out in chapter 4 with words like arm yourselves with this mindset is because it almost takes a daily, if sometimes even in a day, an hourly commitment and recommitment to follow God's will. Why? Well, because he says, first of all, there's human desires. There's what we want. There's our will. And we, even as Christians, have to sort of fight that battle every day. Again, maybe even sometimes every hour of, God, your will, my will. What am I going to choose? What path am I going to take? Is it going to be your will or is it going to be my will. Later on, Peter's going to talk to us too about all the pressure, if you will, peer pressure from around us. Are we going to live and do things based upon what other people want us to do? What their desires and expectations for us are? Or what God wants us to do? And Peter understands how there's always that pull. There's all these different voices that come into our lives. There's what we want to do. There's what others want us to do, and then there's what God wants us to do. And all the time, we are faced with, am I going to commit myself to the will of God? Whatever that is, am I going to live for the will of God? And again, Peter says, when a person, when a Christian gets to a point in their spiritual walk and growth, where they are willing to suffer in the flesh, he says, you enter into a whole new state of walking with God. Because someone who's willing to suffer and accept and embrace God's will, even if it means suffering, has sort of come to a, a different level, if you will, in our walk. And we are so committed to the will of God that it doesn't matter, you know, what we want. It doesn't matter what others want. It matters most of all what God wants. Now, many Christians are like, well... How do I know what God's will is? And the primary answer to that is, His will for us is primarily contained in the Bible. That's where His will is. But you see, because we, a lot of times, are so focused on ourselves, even as believers, when most Christians talk or discuss or even debate God's will, usually it's not the known will of God that's contained in the Bible Usually it's something outside that very much affects our happiness. Like, I wonder, you know, what God's will is for this or for that. And not that God doesn't have a will for that. But here's sort of the way God works in that. 
God says to Christians, I want you to commit yourself to do my will that you know. Get so excited, get so behind, get so enthusiastic, pour yourself into what you know my will is. And it will be out of you doing that, that you will begin to know more of my will for your life that I haven't revealed yet. And then I will give you more insight into why I'm wanting you to go this way. If you just commit yourself to doing what you already know. See, in the Bible, the principle is doing God's will leads to knowing more of God's will. See, Christians, many times we want it the opposite. God, you show me where you're going to take me. And then it's almost like, I'll sort of see where that leads. And if I like it, then I'll, you know, buy onto it and, and, and I'll follow. If not, then, you know, but you, you let me know. And God says, no, that's not the way I work. You've got to trust my plan. You've got to trust my path. You've got to trust my purposes. Remember, the whole message of the word of God is the just shall live by faith. By conviction, by confidence, by trust, by belief in what God has said and who God is and who the Bible reveals God to be. And God is saying to his people, I'm not going to show you any more of my will for your life until until I start to see a commitment to doing what you already know you should be doing. And the whole idea behind it, one of it is, is that God says, if you are so consumed with my will in doing what you know you already should be doing, you won't have a lot of time left to do what you shouldn't do. Because you'll be so concentrating on what you should do. Which again, is sort of opposite from the way many even Christians look at their Christian life. Because whether they grew up in a very even strict or legalistic or environment that dealt more with rules and relationships, many Christians always look at, you know, what I shouldn't be doing. And it's almost like they always look at life from the negative. Oh man, here's all these things that I shouldn't do. And what God is trying to teach us is, you know what? You wouldn't be as concerned about all these things that you shouldn't do if you were consumed with all the things that you should be doing, because you wouldn't have any time or energy left to do the things you shouldn't do if you threw yourself into all this that you know you should be doing at all times. That's where God is. That's why Peter even says, arm yourselves with this kind of mindset. Have the same kind of mind, attitude, motivation that Jesus Christ had. And he was willing to suffer in the flesh even as God who did not deserve any suffering at all. Because he never sinned. And yet he was willing to suffer because he knew that it would bring great benefit, obviously, to those who one day would place their faith in him and would open up a way to God and bring glory to God in all of it alongside of that. So that's where Peter's going with this. That's why notice in verse 3, he goes on to say, For the time has passed. And it was sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire. He's saying, especially for those of us maybe that came to faith in Christ later on in our life, where, you know, we lived for many months or many years doing what we wanted and doing what, 
you know, others would. He says, isn't it time once you become a follower of Jesus Christ to commit your life for the rest of the time you have on earth to really commit yourself to doing God's will for our life rather than what we want anymore? Because haven't we lived enough of our lives doing what we wanted and what other people wanted us to do? And then he begins to list some of them. Most of them are self-explanatory. He says, you lived in debauchery, you lived in evil desires and drunkenness and carousing and drinking bouts or drinking binges. But then he adds this one. I wanted to mention this wanton idolatries. What that really means is worthless worship. In other words, God is saying to many people, you realize you may be going through the motions of worship or church attendance or whatever, but from my perspective, it's, it's worthless because though your body may be there, And you may be in a particular local assembly where, you know, they're worshiping. You may be honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And God says to obey is better than sacrifice. And so God says to his people, you know, you can go through all the motions even of worship. But if you live the rest of those six days or even six and a half days of your life doing what you want, And then you reserve a little time on Sunday to come and corporately worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you go through the motions as if you're worshiping me. God says to me, that's worth, I want your heart. And I want your heart, not just one hour on a Sunday. I want your heart and I want your life and I want your mind seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year. And so I thought that's important for us to remember as well. Then he says, they, speaking of the non-Christians that, you know, you used to maybe do these things with, he says, they are astonished. They're, They're shocked that you're not running or rushing with them into the same flood of wickedness and they begin to vilify or slander you. See, they can't understand the change. That this group maybe of non-Christians that you hung around with and you were intimately close with and you did a lot of things that you and they desired. Once you met Christ, there should be a change. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And all of a sudden, when we become Christians, our priorities are different, which means our our schedule is going to look different. And, and the things that we want to do is going to look different. And again, we're going to hopefully start putting all of our energy and effort into doing God's will rather than what we want or what others want. But he says, don't expect them to understand that. They're not going to understand that change in you. But part of the reason why God creates the spiritual family is so that you and I may lose some friends that we used to have who aren't Christians because simply we don't have as much in common anymore. We're not running down the same path anymore and they might not understand it, but that's not up for us to try to make them understand. They won't understand unless they come to faith in Christ. Now he's not telling us completely ditch them and have nothing to do with them, but the words he uses here speaks of fellowship an intimate communion with. And he says, how can you have more in common with non-Christians than you do or should your now spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ? That should be your new motivation. That's my will for you, you see. And so he says, but you're, you're going to have that pressure. That pressure's always there. 
Am I going to do God's will? Am I going to do what God wants or desires? Am I going to charge into it? Or am I going to do what I want? Or am I going to do what other people want me to do? And that's why, again, Peter's using the language he is here in these first six verses of 1 Peter 4, because he wants us to understand, folks, Christian, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, I don't care how close you are to the Lord even right now, it's going to be a battle every day, which is why Peter uses the term, arm yourselves with the same attitude, the same mindset, the same motivations that Jesus Christ had. Equip yourself for battle every day because it's going to be a battle every day. Maybe again, even hourly of, am I going to do what God wants here? Or am I going to do what I want? Or am I going to do what others want? That will always be the case until the day that we die and go to meet Jesus or we're here and the rapture takes place. It's always going to be there. And so we need to keep these words in mind. That once we are redeemed and set free through the blood of Jesus Christ, our motivation should be to live the rest of our time on earth concerned about the will of God. That should be our motivation. That should be our mindset. That should be what we charge into. But we've got to arm ourselves because there will be a battle. Satan, the flesh, the, the world will be constantly pulling us and saying, don't listen to God. Don't do what God wants. Do what you want. Do what this person wants. And that's why Peter is so adamant here about the language that he uses. Notice he goes on to say, hey, they may slander you, but one day, verse 5, they're going to give an account before Jesus Christ who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And then in verse 6, he says it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Now they're, they're physically dead. So that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, by externals only, they may live spiritually by God's standards or God's will. What Peter is simply saying is this, that especially for the people that he was talking to, many of them had been martyred for their faith. They were judged in the flesh. Externals only. They were put to death for their faith. And though even those that were judging them may go, they gave up their life for, for their faith in Jesus Christ. What a waste. Peter's saying, oh my goodness. They had such a motivation and such a mindset like Jesus that they were willing to embrace the will of God, even if it meant suffering, even if it meant martyrdom, even if it meant giving up their life. He says, yeah, they might be judged externally by those that put them to death or even deem them as crazy for committing themselves so much to God's will. If there even is a God, obviously, for those that don't believe. But Peter says, but don't you get it? This life isn't all there is. And God's the one that has the last word. And our lives are not defined by other people, even what they can do to us physically. Our lives are defined by God. And these people who died, they're living eternally in glory. And, and, and they're no less better off for having been so, you know, for embracing God's will and being so committed that they even were willing to die for it. That didn't make their life here any less. And that certainly doesn't make their eternity any less. He says, because they just followed God's standard or God's will for their life. 
And so Peter's saying, this is why we shouldn't listen to others who have a different perspective on how we should be living than God. If it's a choice between what others think and what we think and what God thinks, Peter's simply saying, it's going to be so much better for us if we learn to commit ourselves and run into and charge into the will of God for our lives. Because there's nothing wrong with God's will. Yeah, it may bring suffering even. It may bring pain. But there's going to be nothing wrong with the will of God. It is going to have our highest good at all times in mind. It's going to have God's glory that we sung about today always in mind. But if I want to know more about what God's specific design and purpose for my life is, Peter is saying, then just start doing what you already know his will is. Because if you want God to reveal more of what he has planned for you, then he's going to look at the Christians who are already doing what they should be doing. And they're already pouring themselves in to what he's already said. And in this context, that's why verses 7 uh, through 11 are really important. That's why we study the Bible in context. And that's why they're in the passage that they're in. Because now Peter is going to talk to them specifically about, so here's the things that you could and should be doing at all times as a Christian. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Here's what it is. And as you start to do these things consistently, as you start to commit yourself to this, then if you want more insight into why God's done certain things, and you want to know more specifically about his design and purpose for your life, that will come as God sees that you are committed to what you already know you should be doing. So in verse 7, he says, let's remember something too. The culmination of all things is near. Now, this word culmination is not a, it's not a chronological term. It, it's not saying, look, the end is, new, is near. Because first of all, there is no end with God. Once something, in a sense, ends, there's still eternity out there. There is no end to our lives. We just go from this existence to that existence. So this term is not a chronological term of time. It's a term that simply means that God's purposes, if you will, God's will is moving forward. And what God has prophesied and planned is imminent. And it's also irreversible and it's also inevitable. In other words, under the umbrella where you and I have a lot of free will to exist, to be able to choose God's will and not choose God's will... There is God's sovereignty over all of that. And God is saying, look, here's where I'm taking this world. Here's where the universe is moving. And you can either get on board with it, even as a Christian, or you can choose not to. But, but my will will be done. In other words, the kingdom of this world will one day be the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you may not want to go that way, but God's will will be done, you see. That's why one of the debates down through even Christian history has always been, it's it's either got to be one way or the other. Either God can be sovereign and not give man free will 
or man can have free will and God not be sovereign. I think the Bible clearly teaches both and that both can coexist with each other. Yes, God gives man free will just like he gave the angels at one time. Free will. Lucifer, you and those angels, you want to reject me? You want to rebel against me? You go right ahead. But I'm still sovereign. And as we've learned in the book of Revelation, I will use even your rebellion against me for my glory. That's the kind of God he is. See, he can allow angels and people free will and free choice and still be sovereign. Why? Because within those boundaries, he's still going to get to where he wants this world to get to. That's how great he is. That's how wise he is. So when Peter says the culmination of all things is near, he's simply reminding us, look, even as a Christian, I might not buy into God's will, but one day God's will is going to happen. So isn't it better if I know that God's will eventually is going to be done, that his will on earth is going to be done just like it is in heaven, then why not go ahead and start surrendering, embracing, and even charging into God's will now? Because one day, if I want to be part of God's kingdom, I will be doing His will throughout all of eternity. So shouldn't I now begin to embrace that rather than fight against it, struggle against it, and reject it? With that, now Peter gets a little specific. What's God's will? Look at verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Peter says, you want to know God's will? Live for prayer. Live to pray. And he uses two terms before that that speak about how we have to begin to learn to discipline our minds and rein in our thoughts. Because Peter is basically using terms here of of self-control and sober-minded to speak about don't as a Christian become frenzied and frazzled in your thinking. Because what that ends up doing is sort of short-circuiting prayer. That instead of remaining calm and composed and bringing things to God, we get all frazzled and, and frenetic in our thinking and our thoughts start going in all these different directions instead of saying, okay... Let me talk to God about this. And that's why we need to continually, again, reign in our minds. That's why we've got to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Because the battleground for the believer is is still in our minds. That's where it all takes place. And God always wants his people to pray. That's his will for my life, to bring requests to him. Paul says in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, bring your prayers, your petitions with thanksgiving to God and let your requests be known to God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Pray. What should we be pouring ourselves into? What's God's will? That we pray. That's God's will. Live to pray. Second, live to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Above all, this means it's a priority to maintain. Keep your love. This is agape in the Greek New Testament. Keep your agape, your supernatural, selfless, sacrificial love for one another fervent. The word fervent means fully stretched out. He says, you want to do God's will? Live to pray. 
You want to do God's will as a Christian? Love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And not just love each other. Love each other supernaturally, sacrificially, selflessly, fully stretched out. Because he goes on to say, love covers a multitude of sins. If, if any group of Christians is going to maintain fellowship with each other, we've got to learn to forgive. We've got to learn to cover one another's hang-ups and things that get on our nerves about each other and all those things instead of always letting them destroy our fellowship. We've got to learn to cover just like Jesus covers our sin and throws it into the depth of the sea. Now, this doesn't mean we condone sin. This doesn't mean we sweep sin under the rug. But what it does mean is that every little thing that people do that irritates us or that could break down fellowship, we learn to let it go. And we learn to cover it rather than continue to expose it and bring it up. A great biblical example of this is Noah. After the flood, the Bible says Noah planted a vineyard and had a little bit too much wine. He went into his tent. He uncovered himself. His first son came in ham, made a big deal about it, actually went out of the tent and said, hey, look at dad in there. The other two sons, Shem and Japheth, went in backwards so that they would not even see their naked father and had a cloak and literally threw the cloak on Noah so that they would not see his nakedness. They covered him instead of exposing him. It's a great example of what Peter's talking about. He says, instead of exposing each other, and making a big deal about all this, if you're going to have fellowship with each other, you got to have that supernatural, selfless, sacrificial, fully stretched out love. And you want to know what God's will is for your life, Christian? Live in that kind of love. Pour yourself into that kind of relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I guarantee you, if we're praying like we should and we're loving like we should, we won't have time to do the stuff we shouldn't do anyway. Then he says, live to share. Notice what he says in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. This word hospitality means genuinely or generously share resources with one another. That's in essence what hospitality is. Originally, it, it meant a friend of strangers or someone who loved strangers. And that was important in biblical times, especially whenever Christians would travel around and they would need people to bring them into their home and maybe give them a meal as they were traveling around and ministering and sharing. That kind of way of expressing hospitality isn't so much practically needed today. But what God does always expect of his people is that we be willing to share whatever resources he's blessed us with with each other. That's what hospitality means generously sharing our resources. And so he says, live to pray, live to love, live to share. That's my will. That's what I expect my people to do. Then verse 10, live to serve one another. Just as each one has received a gift, every believer, the Bible teaches, has received a supernaturally designed ability to make a distinct contribution to the body. And Peter is saying, use that gift, that distinctive, contrib- or that, that supernatural ability 
Use that to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Peter uses another important term, stewardship. He's saying, do you realize God has entrusted you as a Christian with certain abilities and talents and spiritual gifts? And we're going to give an account of how we've used that. That's what many of the parables are about that Jesus gave. How did we use the resources based upon what he just said about hospitality? How did we use the resources God gave us to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ? And are we making a specific contribution to the body? Or are we just coming and being a spectator? It's one of two things. I'm either a contributor to the body or I'm a spectator. I'm just coming and sort of just soaking it up. Or I'm actually making some kind of significant and specific contribution to the body of Christ. You want to know what God's will is? This is God's will. Serve one another. Notice what he goes on to say. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Some people have asked me over the years, why do you just talk about the Bible? You don't tell a lot of stories. You don't give a lot of opinion. Folks, this is a verse that drove me early on in my pastoral teaching ministry. It was like God said to me, Jeff, if you get up in front of people and you want to share something, don't share what you think, share what I think. It should be with God's message. It's God's word. And that's the way it should be in every church. To me, people, God's people should be able to go to a church and hear God's message. Not what some pastor thinks, not what his opinion is, not a bunch of, you know, stories and all that, but God's message. That's what changes people. God's message. And then he says, and whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies. Do it from the power within that God furnishes and provides, so that in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Live to pray, live to love one another, live to share with one another, live to serve one another, and live to bring God glory. Peter says, there's God's will. And then he goes on to say, to him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Live to bring God glory. What's it mean Bring God glory, to give Him glory. We sing about it. We talk about it. What's it really mean? It means to enhance the reputation of God. It means to shine a positive light on God. Think about that. As a Christian every day, As others watch me and listen to me and all that, I'm either shining a positive light on my God, if they know that I confess God or profess a relationship with God, or I'm shining a negative light on God. And the Bible says that obviously it's God's will that once we become his children and we are committing ourselves to following Jesus Christ and becoming more like him, then obviously God's will is that we bring him glory. That everything we do, everywhere we go, we enhance his reputation amongst others. That we shine a positive light upon who he is, not a negative light. And Paul even said to the Corinthians, even in your eating and drinking, 
Do everything, even the most mundane, trivial things, do all to the glory of God. That's God's will. So Peter is saying to us today, Christian, are you committed to the will of God for your life? He's saying, I'm telling you, you better be, because if not, there's a fight. And it's going to be real easy if you're not committed every day and you don't wake up every day saying, God, I need to arm myself with the attitude of Christ. I need to be as committed to God's will for my life as he was while on earth to your will for him. I need to equip myself for battle because there's going to be my flesh. There's going to be other people in the world and there's going to be my spiritual enemy who's going to be trying to pull me away from doing what you want at all times. And i got to realize I'm in a fight, and it starts in my mind. Are we committed to the will of God? But then Peter encourages us. He says, look, here's one of the great things about being committed to the will of God. Once you and I start doing the will of God that we already know, we're going to get more insight and more knowledge of his will by doing it. Doing God's will leads to knowing God's will. That's the biblical principle. Jesus even said the same thing. John 7, 17. You want to know what my will is? Start doing my will. And then I love what Peter does. He gives us real practical application. So what is, what do I, what's God want me to do? Live in prayer. Live for prayer. And, And here's the thing. Can I say this? Did you notice in all those things, living for prayer, living to share, living to love one another, living to serve one another, living to bring God glory, that none of us costs me as far as money, anything? I can do, I can do these things anytime, anywhere. I don't need to spend monetary, you know, material things to do it. I can be a friend to someone. I can love them. I can pray for them. I can, you know, share with them. I I, I can bring God glory. And I can do all that anytime, anywhere. Any of us. It doesn't take a certain, you know, level of something to start doing God's will. It doesn't take, you know, a certain amount of money to be able to start doing God's will. These things... You and I can do every day of our lives. And it doesn't cost us anything to do them. So God says, will you do it? Will you run in to my will? You know, one of the things God shared with me as I was preparing for this too was, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I never get to a position where I can't do anything. That's important. Because I know there's been times in my life, especially where I feel like I'm, I'm being pressured and pressed in by whatever and maybe even some spiritual warfare going on and maybe I'm not in the best place spiritually where I can really start to feel like I'm all alone. I'm all by myself in this. There's no way out. I'm trapped. And that kind of, again, thinking doesn't come from God. God wants to say to every believer here today, if you trust me and you trust in my purposes and my plan and my path for you and you will run into my will, 
You are never in a position where you can't do something. We can always do something. We can always pray. We can always love somebody. We can always share our resources. We can always serve one another. We can always bring God glory. May we commit ourselves to God's will today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you created us with a specific design and purpose in mind for our lives. And so many Christians, God, struggle their whole lives trying to figure out what God's will is for their life. They may even fight against it. They may even be confused by it. But God, I hope today's message maybe cleared up some confusion and demystified your will to some folks here today. That God, really, it's not as complicated as we make it to be. That you never hide your will on purpose from any of us. You want to reveal your will to us and for us. But God, you've shown us your way of doing that. And that is that it starts with us doing what we already know we should be doing and being fully engaged in what you've already told us we should do. That's your will. And once you see that there is a commitment to doing what we already know, that then we begin to get a greater insight, a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of the things that we don't know, but we want to know. So God, I pray today that even though we know that a battle is coming and that the battle is here as we seek to commit ourselves to doing your will, help us every day to get up and recommit ourselves to that will for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.